Well, let's start with a word of prayer. And for the sake of the uh, session, uh, this is on developing a life vision, a biblical life vision. I believe that was the title. What does the book say? A life of vision. What? A life of vision. I want to make sure it's right. This is a life of vision. That's why we're here, because we have a life of vision. Now, does everybody have four or five sheets of paper? Good. That way, in case I get to a sheet and you go, I don't have that one. Okay. So, let's pray together. Anna Humphrey, yeah. would you pray for us, young one? Of course. Um, yes, okay. Heavenly Father, I just thank you um, for this time that we get to really hear from Mike. And um, I just pray that you'll really speak through him, that um, you'll use this time that we'll really be able to learn about how to know what our life or your life vision is for us and um, that, you know, anything that's not from you, that we'll just really um, forget that, that we'll just really focus on your word and um, what is true in our lives, Father. And I just pray that um, everything that's said today will just glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> Again, I'm Mike's story. Why do you think having a vision is important? Very good. If you don't have one, you get lost. From 1971 to 1976, I loved Jesus passionately. I loved the Bible. But the best way to describe my life was that it was random. I'd have my quiet times sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes at night, sometimes in the morning, sometimes not at all. I prayed as I went. I prayed when I remembered but there was no structure, no form, no formula. There was nothing going on as far as it said, this is a priority of my life. I shared my faith on a regular basis, but I couldn't figure out why so many people who responded to the gospel didn't continue to walk in the gospel, why they didn't continue to live for Christ. I didn't understand that. Oh, I want to go ahead and say this. If my speech gets where you don't understand, please don't hesitate to say, would you repeat that? Sometimes I slur things pretty badly, and I... Don't it won't hurt my feelings at all if you say, I didn't get that. I'll be glad to repeat my slur. Uh, but I'll try to make it as clear as I can. And my life was random. And then in 1976, March of 1976, I was a youth pastor in Greeley, Colorado, which is what I call home. The state of Colorado, there's only about three or four of us in churches that had youth pastors, sent a friend of mine, Steve Carroll, and I to a conference that they thought was called Win Our World. It was a mistake. It turned out to be a reach-out conference led by a guy named Max Barnett. It revolutionized my life. Not because of Max, but I never met a man that was so clearly fine-tuned into what God had called him to be and do. I never met a person that was so clear to understand this is the singular purpose my life exists for. And that so impressed me that a guy could give his life to this this idea of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So I memorized this little saying, to know, love, and glorify Christ, and be used of Him to raise up qualified disciples in significant numbers to help fulfill the Great Commission as soon as possible, and if married, to lead my family to do the same. That has been a guiding mantra for my life ever since 1976, because it gave clarity, it gave definition, it gave an intentionality to what my life was about. I was already committed to many of those things, but I couldn't tell you why I was or what my desire was for those things. 
I had more questions than answers. And I still have lots of questions. I don't understand why the local church, we have a pastor, Pastor Travis, why the local church is so obstinate about one-on-one disciple making. Why the local church is... But my, my answer is the local church is sheep. I don't know if you ever work with sheep, but sheep are stupid. Uh, and, and I is one. And uh, we tend to wander away. We, t- we tend to leave the shepherd. We tend to do foolish things. I've spent 30 years of my life making disciples in the local church. Some of it has been just tremendously gratifying. Some of it you just step back and say, has my life been in vain? But you see Paul echoing that all the way through his letters. I fear that our time with you might be in vain. I fear that our message to you was in vain. I fear that what we've given you was in vain. But nothing you do in Christ is in vain, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Your labor is never in vain. Why a life of vision? Let's look at some things. This first sheet I want you to see, it says a life of vision. Proverbs 29, 18. It should be 29, 18. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. The ESV says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. And by the way, if you use the ESV, which is probably the most popular translation among young students today, uh, the thing I love about it, it's really just a carbon copy of the RSV. Uh, I don't think some of those who are proponents of it really have thought about that because the RSV was condemned as being a bad translation. But the ESV reminds me of it. When I was in seminary the first time, that's what we used the RSV, so I love it. It's a great translation. But if you use the New American Standard, if you use the NIV, it may talk about where there's no revelation. But the point is where there is no clear, definitive message from God, no vision from God, this is what I'm calling you to be. Life can run amok. So a life of vision, just follow along. And by the way, anytime you have a question, please feel free to interrupt me. I'm going to go ahead and give another disclaimer. I didn't sleep good last night. And I was at the hospital at 7 this morning with one of our students. So my, my night was rather short. And I don't do well when I'm normal. So we'll just see what happens here. We'll just roll the dice see what kicks out. Clarity and focus that is one's life objective is clear and insight when you have a vision. Clarity and focus. I remember as a young father, a youth pastor... I came to a conclusion, it didn't matter what I did or what I do, I will make disciples. Went to seminary in Midwestern to get my MDiv, and while I was there, they called me into the placement office and said, young man, what has God called you to do? And I said, make disciples. And the professor, I'll never forget the smile, a very kind, gracious, young, elderly man, he said, young man, what is it God has called you to do? And I said, make disciples. Young man, why are you here? And this is what I told him. To make disciples, and Max Barnett said I should come here. (laughs) This is how hard it was. I knew I should go to seminary. I had not lost anything in Texas, so I didn't want to go to Southwestern. I had some buddies in Golden Gate, and that's where I was kind of leaning towards. But Max came up to Greeley and said, Mike, we need some disciple makers at Midwestern in Kansas City. Why don't you go there? Sounds good to me, because in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. And Max speaks for a lot of folks, and... So I went to Midwestern. But my placement guy, he wasn't grasping what I was saying. He thought I was being obstinate and arrogant. He said, no, young man. 
God calls some to be pastors and some ministers of education and some ministers of music and some student directors. And I said, well, I've done student work and I played the guitar quite a bit and sang a lot of stuff. And I had a lot of time, a lot of fun doing evangelism. But I said, I'm here to make disciples. I don't know why I'm here other than that. And I did tell him that I didn't want to close the door to missions if that's what God wanted in my life. I remember he just shook his head and I think he thought, this kid is clueless. But while I was there, I encountered a bunch of guys in seminary who were studying for the pastor who didn't have quiet times, that weren't memorizing scripture, who had never led a person to Christ, who didn't know how to pray effectively. So I just began meeting with him, taking him through books like Master Plan of Evangelism, Disciples Are Made Not Born, because that's all I needed to do, because I was shown by Max, this is what you need to do. So I just did as was done to me. But I'll never forget when I was in seminary, the clarity I had. I knew why I was there. I didn't have this revelation to be a pastor. That did come as God brought clarity. But he was laying the groundworks because what was more important to me is what, Mike, will you be, what will you do that defines and gives definition and intentionality to your life? If you have a vision, it brings clarity. Because I recognize this. You can be an engineer, you can be a doctor, you can be a pastor, you can be a land developer, you can be a mother, you can be a nurse, you can be a doctor, you can be a PA, you can be anything you want to be, and still, first and foremost, be a disciple maker. It gives intentionality that develops true passion. Now, I've discovered something about your generation. You're passionate, or at least in verbiage. And I mean that with all sincerity. You verbally express passion, but I'm yet to see it fleshed out. I hear things about passion about justice and passion about mercy and passion about social injustices being stamped out and fighting poverty. Okay, I see the same ministries doing the same things they've been doing for a hundred years. Nothing's changing. I see your generation graduating, getting jobs at Exxon Mobil, getting a job with. Baker getting a job with Schlumberger, getting a job with Halliburton, getting a job with this law firm or that law firm. And the status quo continues. I believe until you have a clear vision, you don't have true passion. Because a vision gives you the ability to home in. This is what I am passionate about. I don't know that I was a good pastor, but I sure used the pastor to make disciples. Because I saw myself first and foremost as a disciple maker who was called to be a pastor. But before I was called to be a pastor, I was called to be a follower of Christ who would multiply the life of Christ in others. Where there is no vision, the people perish because there's no direction. A life of vision brings definition of who I am and what I do. Who are you? What do you do? What does the fruit of your life say you do? What is the evidence that cries out for a verdict suggests your life has been given to? When you have clarity of vision, it defines you. I have a friend who is now in Kansas, Nebraska, named John Sapp. He's on their staff. He's their missional director and their campus director for the states of Kansas and Nebraska. When we used to be on campus together at Midwestern, he is like heart was discipled by a guy named Bob Anderson at Kansas State, a faithful disciple maker himself. But every time John would see somebody from Africa, it was like a heat-seeking missile. He'd want to talk, and he would spend hours talking to these guys from Africa. And I would be thinking, 
I would know all about the whole continent of Africa, and he's just in the village. What can you possibly be wanting to say or hear or discuss with this guy that can barely speak English for this long? John was passionate about making disciples in Africa. So his heart was honing in, narrowing in, being more and more specific and intentional about making disciples in a given geographical area. And so he could never get enough information. He could not ever get satisfied of his heart. But you see, when you have a life vision, it gives definition to who I am and what I do. It gives you purpose as it relates to why I am and why I do what I do. I pastored for 30 years, 24 in Colorado, uh, or 22 in Colorado and 8 in Oklahoma. And if you came to our church, you would wonder if I did anything except meet with guys. Because that's basically all I did. I'm now the BCM director at Oklahoma State. And you know what I do? I meet with guys. I am every day meeting with young men, hour, an hour and a half, two hours. We pray together. We review, review verses together. Sometimes we'll go out on campus, do evangelism together. We talk about life and how scripture applies to it. We talk about becoming the man God wants them to be. That is what I do. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. It is the purpose of my life. Jesus appointed 12 that they would be with him in Mark 3.14. Or is it 4.13? Look it up. 3.14 or 4.13. Check that out. Mark 3.14 or 4.13. See how alert you are this morning. Then when you find that answer, quote it out. Shout it out. And so I have given my life to this very thing. I will have guys with me helping them learn about Christ as I learn about Christ as they can see Christ in me, I want to reproduce that vision for Christ's likeness in them, which is at 413 and 314. All right. It gives you purpose. Now, think about your life. Do you have purpose? Do you have purpose? A, clear, a, a clarity about this is the purpose of my existence. I remember one time I have a friend named Denny Holzbauer who is a multi-time world karate champion. I mean, he could kill you by looking at you. But he was speaking in our church, and he gave me an ultimate compliment one time. I don't know if he meant it that way, but it turned into a compliment. He said, Mike, I love being with you because you have simplified everything. And you see, when you have clarity of purpose, because you have a vision, it does simplify life. I, don't, I made a decision. If a church asked me to come and speak on disciple making, I would say yes. If they wanted me to come on raising money for a building, I would say no. If they wanted me to come and speak on Sunday school, I would say no. If they wanted me to come and talk about worship styles, I would say no. If they wanted to see, I knew where my passion was. I knew what I was intentional about giving my life to. I knew where my focus was. So it just gave clarity of purpose. Why would I give my time to things I'm not passionate about? I, I only have X amount of hours in my life. Why would I give them to things I don't care about? Moving on. A vision is the encompassing directive that puts everything else into proper perspective. It determines who and if I marry. Why would you marry someone who's not like-hearted? Because I love them. Well, that may well be. You can love a puppy, too. You can get yourself a cat. 
But the bottom line is, why would you marry someone who's not pulling the rope in the same direction you're pulling? Have you ever played four-way tug-of-war? you got to try that sometime. You get four extensions that are knotted together in the middle, and you have four teams. And until teams figure out they've got to work together, they'll fight and they'll fight and they'll fight and they'll fight, and they go nowhere. Then you'll see one team swing over the other side, and they're pulling together. And then the other team, if they don't like that team, they'll swing over there, and it's two against two. Well, then you don't go anywhere again. So then you, you'll see the third team swing over. And the minute the third team swings over, victory. And then it begins to divide and conquer. You see, why would you marry or date someone who's not going in the same direction as you? One of the things that I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to tell our couples who to marry and who not to marry. That is not my job. But my job is to point out what I see. And we've told some of our young ladies, yes, he's a good guy. He loves Jesus. But if you marry him, you will be the head of that relationship. If you marry him, you will always be pushing the wagon up the hill. Backwards. If you marry him, you will always be the instigator and the initiator. Is that what you want? I've said to some fellas, yes, she loves Jesus, but she's not committed to the values you're committed to. She's committed to the Bible, but not in the way you're committed to it. And she'll never fully support what you do or why you do it. Is this what you want to give your life to? If you're clear in vision, if your your focus is clear and your purpose is understood, it determines who you marry and why you marry, or if you marry. It shapes how you raise your family. It determines your vocation and how you incorporate that vocation as your ministry. Because it doesn't matter what you do for a living. How will that be incorporated into this vision that God has given me? Does that make sense? Since I got this great guitar stuff here named Matthew, we uh, had a band when I was pastoring in Colorado called the Old Man Band. We were all Christians. Most of the guys were out of the church I pastored, Community of Grace, in uh, Centennial, Colorado. But we purposed that we would use rock and roll, to communicate the gospel. And you say, that's an oxymoron. You can't do that. Yes, you can. How many of y'all have ever done prison ministry? All right. One. If you go into a prison and you sing gospel music, only a few of the Christian inmates will show up. If you go into a prison and you're doing the blues and rock and roll, they'll show up and pack out the room. Then once you've got their attention, you can begin to share your stories. You can share how that defines some pictures and times in your life. Like we would sing the song by Cream called Crossroads, an old blues song out of Chicago. We would sing Knocking on Heaven's Door as our invitation song. And during the song Knocking on Heaven's Door, you'd see these old ragged inmates weeping and sobbing. We were simply using a tool, rock and roll, as a means to open the key, the door lock of their life, to share the love of Christ with them. We were very intentional, very clear. We used music as a means to communicate the gospel. How can you, as a disciple maker, if that's your vision for life, how can you, as that person, use an accounting degree, an engineering degree, a medical degree, a land development degree, 
a, a career in petroleum engineering, a mechanical engineering, whatever you're into. How can you use that as the context in which you will make disciples? If you don't have a vision, it's not even a relevant question to you. If you're not clear in your purpose, it doesn't matter. You'll be random all your Christian life. When I look at most of the church, and Travis, you can disagree with me. This is a fine pastor here from Purcell, Oklahoma. Most people who go to church are good people. Didn't say righteous, didn't say holy, didn't say... I just said good people. Believe in God. Want to raise their family. Want their kids in church. But what most of them do in my observation is they compartmentalize. We have church time. We have business time. We have family time. We have recreation, fun time, vacation time. And we have this pie of life. And God's just a part of the pie. If I have a vision for life, it consumes the whole pie. It emanates from the very core of what I am. That's what I was trying to communicate last night about abiding. It defines you. It shapes my view of what I consider to be successful. Ryan Raines came to our ministry from Kentucky by way of Stevensville, Texas. Big, big ministries. And he'd say, Mike, how do you define success? I said, one life at a time. Well, what do you mean by that? One life at a time. If I begin to invest in you, and all of a sudden the lights come on, and you're going, I can do this myself. And you turn around and begin to invest in that man, and all of a sudden lights come on, and he goes, I can do this. And all of a sudden you pick up another guy, and he picks up a guy. That's how I measure victories. That's how I measure triumphs. That's how I measure success. One life at a time. I used to go up to Conoco, not Conoco, it was Texaco in those days. It was it got sold out, became other companies, but before, not Conoco Phillips, they merged. But I would go up to Texaco and I'd help lead a Bible study with a friend of mine named John Van, who now works with Valero Oil in San Antonio. I discipled John. And so I would go up John's Bible study and just help him do what he was trying to do. What John was trying to do is what I was doing to him, he was trying to do in his office during lunch breaks. Totally voluntary, uh, no coercion, though he had about 600 employees under him. You come if you want, and about five came. And he simply wanted to reproduce what was being given to him to them. He had a vision how to use his job as his ministry to make disciples. It shapes my view about wealth and money. What makes you wealthy? What makes what, What's your view on money? Does a lot make you happy? More make you satisfied? You ought to read Ecclesiastes 5.10 and other verses in Ecclesiastes and in Hebrews where it tells you to be content with what you have. If you're in love with money, you'll never be content. Never will be. You'll never have enough. But when you're a disciple maker, when you have a clear vision for whatever it is God gives you clarity in, I assure you it affects the way you view wealth. For example, I heard John Crawford, old John Crawford. How many of you know who I'm talking about when I say John Crawford, the navigator? John passed away about two years ago. About, I think he was 91. Went home to be with Jesus. But John said, I'm a wealthy man. One time in our church, as he was speaking to our fellowship up in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Because he said, I can go across the United States. Wherever I go, there's almost someone in my major cities that I've discipled, poured my life into, that will give me everything that I need on my journey. I'm a wealthy man. I'm not as effective as John Crawford, but I can go to the West Coast and along the way stop in many places 
and have a meal and a fellowship with someone, God allowed me the privilege to invest in their life. And I understand wealth is not measured in the size of your bank accounts, your 403B or 501K or whatever they are called. I don't know. Those are not the things that define wealth. Wealth is defined in the relationships you have that are now like-hearted to you and of a kind purpose. You're a wealthy person. But how do you define success? How do you define wealth and money? It determines where and how you live. You know you can live anywhere. You really can. God's not as much concerned about where you live as how you live. Because how you live will affect what, regardless of where you are. Now, I want to tell you this. How many of you live in the Bible Belt right now? If you move outside the Bible Belt, it is not the same. It isn't the same. People don't think that way. Most of my life has been in this state. Colorado does not think like Oklahoma. For example, on our college campus, we do evangelistic surveys twice a week. We know four out of ten students who come onto our campus, and perhaps more than that, profess to be a Christian and a Southern Baptist. We can't find 80% of them ever in our ministry, in crew, in the navigators, in Stumo, in the churches, they just don't show up. But if you ask them, are you a Christian, the answer is yes. If you ask them, are you born again, the answer is yes. But the reality is they're probably not. They don't even know they're in a far land. They're having the time of their life running as fast as they can away from everything they were raised with. But when you come to Colorado... Go to California, go to Arizona, go to Oregon, man, Oregon, go to Washington. God, what are you talking about? I'm God. Or who is she? I haven't met her yet. Or which God are you talking about? There are many gods. That's the West and that's the East and that's the North. That's the world. But wherever you go, you can make disciples if that's your focus in life. If that's your clarity of life. So here's the question. What is your vision for life? What is it that has shaped your purpose and your focus and brought clarity and intentionality to your life? Where there is no vision, the people perish. I want us to look at Nehemiah real quick. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll make this statement again. Having a vision of what God desires brings clarity and simplification to one's life. Nehemiah was in the court of the king of Assyria part of the first group of Jewish refugees that were taken away as Assyria conquered and later Babylon conquered uh, the land of Judah and Israel. Word came back from his family that the city of Jerusalem was in total disarray and those who were not captives were totally harassed and buffeted on every side. They lived in terrible peril. And that the walls of the city were torn down. It Broke. In fact, look at this. As soon as I heard verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When he heard what had befallen the people of God in Israel and Judah, it broke his heart. That tells me that Nehemiah had a heart for the things that were on the heart of God. If you're going to have a vision from God, you must have a heart for the things that God has in His heart. What does God have on His heart? People. People. Does God care for all people? Regardless of our struggles? I I struggled. I was told as a pastor that I didn't like women. That was not my problem. 
My problem is I liked women. So to deal with that, here's how I dealt with women. My sisters, I'll just keep you at safe distance so I can respect you and protect you from me. Because I'm prone. See, I evolved from a dog. Because that was true, I had to have victory so the only way to have safe space. Let the word and the spirit be the buffer between. I had issues with habits. Did any of y'all have habits in life? I did. So I had a, I couldn't even eat Mexican food for almost a year because Mexican food was always good for a smoke and a beer. And I didn't want any of those lingering thoughts to be coming back and emerging in me. So, I mean, I, I let go of lots of things because I had to be free. I wanted to be the captive set free. I don't know where I was going with that, but I'm sure it was going someplace. <laughs> it had some significant meaning, but we'll come back to it. It'll pop back in my head. But the people of God are always in heart. We want what God has in His heart. And I wanted to be a vessel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, it says, In a great house there are many vessels, some for noble use, some for ignoble use. If any man purifies himself for what is ignoble, he will be a vessel fit for the master's house, consecrated and useful for every good work. I wanted to be that guy. Because I met Christ. I couldn't believe I was on His heart. So do you have on your heart what God has on His heart? If you say yes... Who have you talked to this week about God's love? How many of you believe God has hurting people on His heart? How many hurting people have you talked to this week? See, the reality is, we say these words, but we don't back it up with our actions, because we don't have the heart of God. When Nehemiah heard that the people of God were in peril, it broke his heart. So much so, if you read on this first chapter, he went before the king and asked a favor in the second chapter. What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? The king asked. Why are you so downcast? And he told him the story. The king said, whatever you want is yours. And the king sent him almost a little army with him to go to Jerusalem to do one thing, to rebuild the wall. Now look at verse 12 of chapter 2. And I rose at night, me and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Not only was he broken for what broke the heart of God, not only did he seek God in prayer and fasting, not only was he compelled to do something about it, even at the risk and peril of his own life, he didn't advertise it. He didn't write a book about it. He didn't do a sermon series on it. It broke his heart, so it created action. He got permission, he went. And even when he got to Jerusalem itself, it said, I told no one what God had put in my heart. Who put it in his heart? When I was exposed to Max Barnett, Max Barnett, Max Barnett did not put anything in my heart. God did. I'm sitting here in a room just like you're sitting in. And I thought, wow, this explains why these guys I've led to Christ weren't making it. I thought they just weren't tough enough. I thought they just didn't get that they needed to take up their cross and follow Jesus. I didn't understand I had to help them get grounded. I didn't understand they were babies who needed milk. They needed a father and a mother's attentiveness. They needed me to come alongside and walk with them and carry them and sustain them. They needed me to be with them and them with me. They, I didn't get it. And it's like the lights went on. I go, whoa, I can do this. I didn't understand how important it was for me to have a system of faithfulness in my life. Because if you're going to imitate my life, you will always imitate my weaknesses, not my strengths. And so I want to be consistent and faithful 
even in the little things, so that you could do what I do and learn to love Christ like I love Christ. What I got when I heard Max speak, not Max, but God's Word made sense to me. And I caught a vision what was on the heart of God to give my life. See, I always read the, the, the Great Commission. Go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations. That's not what it says. But that's what the King James says. It says, go therefore and make disciples. But our problem is, what in the world does a disciple look like? Well, when I heard this session in 1976, for the first time, I understood what a disciple looked like, acted like, behaved like, and did. And it was like, Eureka! I can give my whole life to this thing. Man, it changed me. And I've not gotten over it yet. I got news for you, I'll never get over it. So at night he got up with a few men and he didn't tell anybody what God put in his heart. But if you read on, you will find that they built the wall around Jerusalem. Sometimes they had a working tool in one hand and a sword or spear in the other hand. It came at great hardship and great opposition, but they did what God told them to do. Now who provided the resources? God did. Who put it on his heart? God did. For whose people was it? God's people who was God broke for? His people. There's a rhyme and a reason to a biblical vision. Moving on. Is this making sense at all? Yep. Yeah. Having a vision for life removes randomness and speculation and uncertainty. Have a vision helps you sort out the best from the rest, the urgent from what is truly important, and snares the trite and the unnecessary from your life. Most of you will give your life to trite things and unnecessary things. Most of you, if you're in, and Travis, rebuke me if I'm wrong, bro, because you're a practicing pastor. Most of us in the pastorate, if you come into the typical, how many of y'all are Southern Baptist masks? Would you just hold your hand up? If you're, how many of you are Methodist or Nazarene or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Assembly of God or something else? Non-denominational. That's charismatic. I know what that is. Which is all fine and damn with me. If you get into a church and they see you have life and blood pulsating through your veins, they want to put you in leadership. And in a Baptist church, that means a committee. Personnel, building and grounds, uh, committee on committees, nominating committee, service committee, whatever we have. we got tons. I was pastoring a church one time for two years that had 75 committees when I got there. 75 committees. That's incomprehensible. But what happens is, here you come and you're excited about Jesus. I mean, you love Christ. Praise God, she's got a pulse. Let's put her on the nominating committee. Let's put you, you got you, you have an accountant. We're gonna put you on the finance committee. Man, that'll throw your soul. And, and you you work in human resources, we're gonna put you on the personnel committee. Yes. And all of a sudden you're in this thing and there's there's no time for prayer. There's not a time of accountability. There's not a time for reflection on what God wants. It's multiple choice, and we begin rhyme and reason. We do these things. We pick, we choose, like casting lots. And all of a sudden, six months down the road, we say, Oh, you're good with people. Let's make you a Sunday school teacher. But we're going to give you a quarterly and a manuscript that teaches you how to read the quarterly to your pupils. And how they're not going to read it, but they're going to come on Sundays. I, I filled in for my Sunday school teacher last summer. I tell my wife when I went home, I said, This is why I didn't cry when I left the pastorate. Because none of them came expecting to receive anything. Now they would tell me every single, oh Mike, we love to hear you teach, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't add it for kudos. 
I want the Word of God to transform a person. Well, my point is, you can give your life to church, and I want my students that I'm part of to be churchmen. I'd like them to go to Travis's church and say, we're here reporting for duty. Do you have some men or some women we can pour our life into? Do you have some need in evangelism? Do you have some need in some service projects that we can be a part of? Do you have some needs? Do you have some needy people that we can be a minister to? I'd want them to come and have work gloves on, work boots on, and a mind to serve, not get incarcerated into the mechanism of the church. The church is a mechanism, but it was supposed to be a body. The church is an industry, but it was supposed to be a ministry. We've lost that somehow along the way. So you learn to separate the trite and the unnecessary from the things that are duly necessary and important to the kingdom of God. Having a vision is by necessity derived from God's word and his will. If you have a true biblical vision, it came from God. Now I'm going to say something I won't, I won't cover the sheet. Most pastors I know have dreams. They dream of bigger education wings, bigger auditoriums. We're going to give more money to Lottie Moon. I love Lottie Moon. We're going to give more money to Annie Armstrong. And I love Annie Armstrong. We were big givers to those things. We're going to be the number one church in our denomination in baptisms. And I've been in churches where we were in the top five in our state. I understand all those statistics. But those are dreams. Anybody can build a building. You don't need God to build a building. You need a loan. Anybody can start a program. You don't even have to walk with God to start a program. Anybody can be trained to teach. You see, the dream depends on you and me working together. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But it is not a necessity dependent upon God to be fulfilled and realized. Having a vision leads us to our absolute need to abide in Him, acknowledging our total dependence on Him. We can't do this if God doesn't show up. I can't help you become like Christ if you won't let Christ make you hungry and thirsty for His presence. I can't help a person learn to know God intimately if they don't want to know God intimately. I can't make a person do anything they're not willing to do by choice. Having a vision... Leads to the absolute need to obey His Word, which is fleshing out our trust in Him. Do not be hearers of the Word, only deceiving your hearts, but rather be doers of the Word. James 1.22 You see, if I have a vision, it causes me to do it. If I have true passion fed from a vision, it motivates me to give feet to my passion. It motivates me to open my mouth and do what I say I'm compassionate about, and back it up with my hands and my energy and my money and my resources and my family. Being a disciple maker has been costly on my family. My wife, most of our married life, has had people living with us. She has come downstairs for 24 years. We lived in a, 22 years we lived in a home in Denver, Colorado. And she would come down two mornings a week at 6 o'clock and find a group of men in our living room. Then at night I'd meet with guys in our office at the building. And during the day I'd meet with guys one-on-one. Not just lunch breaks, and I never met on a golf course. That's ridiculous. You may seal a deal on a golf course, but you don't make disciples on a golf course unless you're just doing that for recreational fun. And by the way, you ought to have fun when you're making disciples from time to time. Go out and do something good. Do something goofy. Water balloon fighter. Laser tag. Or paintball war. 
Having a vision leads you to stand on His promises, which gives birth to assurance in Him. Are you standing on the promises of God? You see, when you have a vision, this is what God wants me to do. I can't do this unless God's in this. I can't do this unless God has inspired this. I am unable to do any of this unless God gives me the resources and the provision. It forces you to stand on the promises of God. Are you standing on any of His promises today for anything? See, most of you are going through school and you really do think it's based on your ability to study. I wish you would have had my IQ. I wanted to go to OU because I had radical friends at OU. But I was drunk when I took my ACT test. Honestly, sobriety wouldn't have helped me. might have hindered me. Because I guessed a lot more when I was inebriated. I would have thought I was just being serious when I was sober. So I couldn't go to OU. I couldn't go to Oklahoma State. I wanted to go to Colorado State because I had a bunch of students for Democratic Society. It's a radical left group. That's what I was a part of. I wanted to be there. So I went to Weatherford, Oklahoma. And I loved it. Because God was at work there. God was moving in my heart there. Don't even know why I said that. But I began the journey of learning to stand on His promises. Not my abilities. I went to seminary. This is where I was going. Went to seminary. Had the same IQ. Had the same... See, I didn't know how to study in college. That was my basic problem. When you cheat your way through school, you don't have a lot of good skills under the belt. And I realized after I got right with Christ in Southwestern State in Weatherford, that I didn't know how to study. I graduated with 2.75 average from Central State UCL with a degree in philosophy. And I realized I still don't know how to study. Then I caught a vision for making a disciple, started memorizing verses. Started studying the Word of God seriously. Started pounding my heart and my mind with the Word of God. When I went to get my master's degree... My IQ was the same, but my grade point was radically different. It affected me, not because of who I was, but because of who he was and the tools he gave me to be successful. Even depending on him for my grades changed. Depending on how I studied, trusting him. God, I can't do this. I, like, I took three years of Greek and Hebrew. I hate Greek and Hebrew. When guys get up and say, I just love the Greek. I think you are on crack. <laughs> Man, what is wrong with your head, dude? You are whacked, Travis. I hope I'm not speaking with you. And if you, God bless you, brother. And I've got all the tools, but you know what? I did well on all those subjects because I was depending on God and His truth and His trust. My trust was not in my ability or my skills. My trust and my dependence was on Him. And I had to pray about every class I took. I had to pray all the way through it. And when I get an A in a class, I would be humbled that God would give me a grade like that. Because I wasn't used to it without cheating. And now I was getting them because God was helping me. And His promises were sure. Promises you're standing on to do well in school, or is it just your abilities and your scholarliness? A biblical vision brings glory to God, builds the people of God, and expands the kingdom of God. It depends on God to be accomplished. Without A biblical vision will outlive the visionary. For example, Max Barnett cast a vision of making disciples. I responded to it. Where does the concept for making disciples come from? The navigators? And I'm grateful for 
God for the navigators. But is that where the vision for disciple making came from? Where did it come from? Jesus when? How do we know it came from Jesus? The Bible, the Word of God. Where? Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 18 through 20. Why would we say it comes from there? Go and as you go make disciples. Who's that given to? To disciples, to all of us who say we know Jesus, who say we're following Christ. Here is His mandate. Here is His commission. So if I say, I want to give my life to making disciples, is it biblical? Yes. Mm-hmm. Whose desire is it? Yes. On whose heart is it? Yes. So if I say, that's my vision, have I aligned myself with the heart of God? Have I aligned myself with the will of God? Have I aligned myself with the heart of God? Am I... Standing on the Word of God when I say it's biblical. Will it outlive me? I love John Crawford. I don't know if you all have seen the video called Passing It On. Men in our church when I was at Community of Grace and he and I and another couple guys, we went all over the country filming these great disciple makers. And John Crawford rubbed his old bald head and he said, After I'm long gone, making disciples will continue because it started before me and it will continue after me. It is not dependent on me. See, it's biblical. It's on the heart of God. It comes out of the persona of God Himself. God wants people to know Him and walk with Him and be with Him. Enjoy His presence. Experience His goodness and know His love and His grace. To be holy for He is a holy God. But to know His mercy, not His wrath. Does it bring glory to God to make disciples? What do you base that on? I'd be saying John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear forth much fruit. So shall you be called my disciples. Verse 16 says, I want you to bear fruit that remains, and so prove to be my disciples. I have a biblical mandate that this is what God commissions me to do, and that it brings glory to His name. I mean, a lot of the guys, now please excuse me for saying this, a lot of guys that are of a theological persuasion that talks about the mystery of God, really it's a box for God. And some of the biggest conference leaders in the world today are big proponents of this position. I think it could not be more erroneous if it were tried. And they're talking about bringing glory to God and glory this and glory that and this, that. And this makes me want to hurl. Because there's no action to it. Jesus came and said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come walk with me. I saw you sitting under a tree. You truly are an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Come, follow me. And in three years, those men who walked with Christ transformed their known world. Acts 4.13, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and recognized they were common, uneducated men, they marveled. And then they remembered they had been with Jesus. That's discipleship. Luke 6.40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully taught will be like his teacher. John 13, 15 through 17. For I have given to you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a disciple is not greater than his master, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his master. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What had he just done in John chapter 13? Wash their feet. And he's saying, this is what a disciple does. He serves. She Washes feet. She cares for others. He puts others ahead of his own interests. We see the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 8. This is what a disciple is. Like Christ. 
They'll outlive you. It's always based on the Word of God. Now, real quickly, I want to talk about this. This is a vision for your life. Do you have any questions at this point? Any thoughts? Any retract? Any pushback? Am I communicating clearly? All right. I went ahead and typed out. Max says I typed it wrong. I said, but Max, this is how I apply it. And he was proud. To know, love, and glorify Christ, be used by Christ to raise up qualified disciples in significant numbers to help fulfill the Great Commission as soon as possible. And if married, and when or when I marry, I will leave my family to do the same. You may not get married, and you know God's good with that. There are some places God may lead you to go, it's better if you're not married. But for most of you, you'll probably get married. But will you be faithful? Let me ask you a question. Is it God's will to know Him? Is it God's will to know Him? Is there a biblical basis for knowing God? So we would agree that would be the will and purpose and the Word of God for your life, to know God. Is it God's will to love God, to experience His love and to share His love and to be in that love? Is that God's will? To bring glory to God, okay. Does God want to use you? Do you matter? Or is it already prescribed and predetermined and you really don't matter at all? See, if that's where you prescribe, I can't help you. But if you believe your life matters, then your life matters. It matters the choices you make, the directional decisions you make and encounter, how you invest your life and how you spend your life and what you care. It matters. The detours you take cut off time out of your life. I have to be honest, I spent 20 years in a church I started in Colorado. And I can only see about five or six, seven guys that are walking with Christ as disciples. I saw the values they established after I left, and they said, this is who we are. And I see what they're doing now. And numerically, they're doing fine, but it breaks my heart. Because outside of about five or six guys... I don't know that they got it. And that's all I preached and how I lived and what I gave my life to. I grieve for that. And I've asked my father, Father, have I just spent 20 years of my life in vain? And he'll bring Les and he'll bring Jeff and he'll bring Rory Tucker and he'll bring these guys from my remembrance. And he'll say no. But God, why so few? And he doesn't answer me. And why I'm on a college campus now, just so you understand this, I, at 56, was taking stock of my life. And I felt, where could I get the greatest return for my life investment? And the conclusion was, on a college campus. Because there's no place on the planet where people have more time, more teachable hearts, more readiness to be available, more willingness to try, less fear of failure, less habits to overcome, Potential galore. Why not give? So I asked the Father, I'm hoping God will let me do this till I'm 70. It gives me 10 more years. Because I see such great potential. And I want my life to matter. To raise up qualified disciples in significant numbers. Go therefore and make disciples of some nations. Is that what it said? Some in the nations. Is that what it said? Part of the nations. So it means qualified numbers, doesn't it? Numbers are important to God. Significant numbers is important to God. Significant numbers. I believe my family to do the same. Now, here are four types of persons who rarely ever struggle with vision. Because they don't have one. 
And these are just my observations. You, you don't have to agree with these. You can create your own, but these are the ones I see. The fearful person. They struggle with trusting God and His Word, though they may study and even teach it. They struggle with receiving God's love. They struggle with faith and obedience. Their faith is based primarily on what they can see and control. Do any of y'all relate to that? They fear Their fear impairs their ability to walk with God and many times results in them becoming overly controlling for they fear being out of control. They can be very religious, but they have a God problem. A person consumed by fear is missing the love of God. The love of God casts out fear. That's what it does. So when I meet a person who's fearful, what I meet is a person who has a love issue. They have a God problem. And they have no concept of God. Is God greater than your fears? Is God greater than your infirmities or your weaknesses? How many of you all have personal weaknesses? I have tons of them. Tons of them. Amen, brother. I know what my limitations are. I know what I can't. It's like, it's like playing sports. When I was in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, FCA had their offices in our facility. That's Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was surrounded by studs. And every day after work, before evangelism at night, we'd go play hoops. Every day. Now, did I say I was surrounded by studs? I mean, three of them were all state basketball players. One of them played with Wayman Tisdale. I don't know if you remember Wayman Tisdale. He was a stud, 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 who's now with Jesus. But he played at the University of Oklahoma, and the guy was a phenomenon. This guy played with him on the All-State game. College ball player. One of them was named Donnie D., who's now the vice president of FCA. And Donnie was the athlete of the year in the Kansas City Metro the year he graduated. A double athlete in the area of basketball and football and chose football. I'd go over and hear stories ability. I'm slow. I can't jump. I'm slow. Did I say I can't jump? I'm not a good shot. I'm slow. And I'd play with these guys. They would beat me like a drum. But I didn't care. Because I knew I was slow. I knew I could drum. But I wasn't competing against them. In Christ, because I'm called by Him to make disciples, the only person I have to run against is me. And I'm not going to let my fears... Or my lack of something keep me from being all that God wants me to be. Because in Christ, I am a conqueror. In Christ, I can do all things. All things. In Christ, I have no lack of resource. In Christ, there are no obstacles that cannot be overcome in Christ. The rebellious. Now, this is one I really related to. They strive to be nonconformist. They resent being told to do almost anything. They have issues with authority and dislike being held accountable. They want to be seen as independent, free spirits, but really they are afraid of commitment and being held responsible. They will avidly support lost puppies in Tibet, but struggle with joining the body of Christ, the church. They want to be seen as listening to the Holy Spirit, but struggle with daily disciplines of the Christian walk. They have a God problem. You know that person? I had a lot of people say, I bet you wish you could have met Max Barnett when you were a new Christian. It's probably best I didn't. Because I knew more than anybody over 30. As a 20-year-old kid, I was infinitely wiser than my peers, even though I'd only been around with Christ a few hours. I had a rebellious heart. I didn't trust anybody over 30. I didn't trust my parents. I didn't trust pastors. I didn't trust government officials, particularly military officials. And I sure didn't like pastors. 
the, com- the comfortable. They're happy where they are. They have little or no desire to change for they have their lives all mapped out. They resist anything that challenges the status quo and the plan. Their idea of faith is totally based on what they see and what they want. They are in charge of their lives and like the job they are doing. True faith is extremely difficult and obedience is negotiable. Our churches are filled with the comfortable. They have a God problem. Now understand what I'm saying. How many of you are from a small town? Is there anything wrong with being from a small town? How many from a big city? Anything wrong with being a big city? No. How many of you want to go back to that city or that town when you get, when you graduate? Is there anything wrong with doing that? Not a thing, unless God doesn't want you there. And if God doesn't want you there, you're in sin when you go there. If God, if you got convicted, you need to go to Cambodia because your peers are going to Cambodia, and you go to Cambodia because you felt guilted into it, you're in sin being in Cambodia. It doesn't matter where you go, just so God told you to go there. I tell people, I had a guy get mad at me because I was talking about, girls, why would you marry, if you have a heart for the nations, why would you marry a guy who wants to move back to Godibo? So a guy in our ministry came to me and said, what's wrong with Godibo? I said, nothing, I'm in Godibo, it's called Stillwater. I said, I left Denver to come to Godibo. I live in Mayberry. Manford, Oklahoma is where I live. Man, that is Mayberry capital of the U.S. of May. I'm there because God told me to be there. That's the reason I'm there. That's all I need. People who are comfortable never hear from God, never have a vision of God. The faithless. They profess God with their lips, but deny Him in their actions and about every area. They rarely read their Bibles, but always pray when they want something. They say they want God's will, but most of their decisions suggest otherwise. They attend church irregularly, but it's a social gathering rather than a necessity. They're convinced that of their salvation, but they never bear the fruit of abiding in Christ. They, they are a walking contradiction. They're big on God talk, but little on obedient action. They have a God problem. You might find some others. But these are four people, four groups of people that will never have a vision for God. And I want to ask you a question. Do you have a vision from God for your life? I'll suggest one to you. I'll tell you which one we turn to. How many of you believe God would want you to love Him passionately? To know Him deeply and intimately? How many of you believe it's God's will for you to bring glory? Well, I've already asked this, but I want to ask you again. It's God's will for you to bring glory. At the end of your life, three years ago I was in Atlanta, Georgia with the Johns, Kelsey and Strap. And I got on the plane. I wasn't feeling good. In fact, I couldn't breathe. But I thought I'd heard a rib had been pouring concrete around my house carrying those 80-pound bags, and I thought I'd pulled a muscle or something on my back. It turned out to be pulmonary embolism. And as I found out from Dr. Kelsey... 93% of the people who get those die. And they got me to a hospital just in time in Atlanta, and I didn't die. But I remember in my hotel room, I thought I was going to die. I about passed out because I couldn't breathe. You feel like someone stuck a rod through your chest. What it feels like. I mean, it feels like this, not a, not a knife, a rod or a post. Not a nice experience. But all I could think of was the peace that God was giving me. That I've had a great relationship with my father. I've had a great marriage. I have great sons. I have great joy in the disciples I've invested in. And all that came over me was peace. I thought I was just about to pass out. And I I remember thinking, this is it. This is it. And all I had was peace. 
When you bring glory to God in your life, it comes with a great dose of peace. Pull the sheet out. I want us to read it out loud together. A vision for your life. To know, love, and glorify Christ. To be used by Christ to raise up qualified disciples in significant numbers. To help fulfill the Great Commission as soon as possible. And if and when I marry, I will lead my family to do the same. Is that biblical? Does it touch the heart of God? Does this depend on God to be realized? Will this outlive you? Why not give your life to it? If you'll give your life to something like this or some way you would reword something like this, I will promise you it will give you clarity. It will give you direction. It will give you focus. And it will give you passion. You see, when I meet a young man now, I'm looking for how can I help him be more like Jesus. And the way I do that is I listen to him. Tell me your story. And as I get to know this young man, and I begin to see his heart and see his mind and see his desires, I can then make an assessment. How can I come alongside and begin to help this guy know Christ intimately? Sometimes it begins with the gospel. They don't know Christ. That's where it needs to start. They need to have a relationship with Jesus. So I need to help them come to the place where they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Then I need to help them begin to develop the cornerstone foundational blocks of life. The assurances of salvation. The assurance of forgiveness of sin. The assurance of God's love. The assurance of God's forgiveness. The assurance that God answers prayer. The assurance of God's word truthfulness. And all these foundational truths need to be things that are pillars for their life. And I spend time. How long does it take to grow a child to maturity? 20 some odd? It's different for every child, isn't it, Brian? I think I was in my 40s. My mother was still alive, and I think she was still worried about me. <laughs> when does God give up on you? Never. Never. When you're discipling someone, you come alongside and you pour your life into them. So being affectionately desirous of you, we're willing to share with you not just the gospel, but our very selves because you became so dear to us. First S2.8. We gave you not just the gospel, but our lives. Because we loved you. That's discipleship in the pickle barrel, man. That's it. This would be something for you to chew on, to meditate on, to consider. Can you give your life to this? Does this tell you what you have to do for a job? Dude, you can play the blues and do this. You can be a mom, you can be a nurse, you can be a doctor, you can be an engineer, you can be an architect, you can be anything you want to be, Miss Anna. And make disciples. And make disciples. But if you don't have something that gives clarity to your life, your life will be random at its clearest point. And it will be just without intentionality. When I die, I hope that what can be said of me was he gave his life to bring glory to God by making disciples. And he did it well. That's what hope can be said by me. Look at this last thing. What does it mean to have a vision? We'll close with this. Any questions at this point? Any thoughts? Any observations? Did any of y'all see the movie Quigley Down Under? Okay, cool. If you saw it, it's a cowboy with Tom Selleck who went to Australia. It's a great flick. It's a great cowboy. I love cowboys. My boys say I like to watch grass grow. But I like cowboys, and I like that one. All too often, however, we're like Quigley, lost in the desert of Australia, having no idea where we are or where we're going, but we're just going. That's the average Christian guy and gal. You love Jesus, 
have no idea where I'm going, but we're doing great. We're having a great time. Don't know when I'll get there. Don't know how I'll find my way, but praise God, love Jesus. That's the average Christian lost in the desert of life. For far too many Christians, their lives are random like a pinball, constantly bouncing around with no purpose or direction. The opposite is just as tragic. These are very controlled and predetermined for their greatest fear is failure, so all too often they never do anything outside of the known and the secure. Some are random, some are controlled, but neither have a vision for what God wants in their life. In other words, neither have a clue where they are or where they're going. Where are you going? If you listen to God, He'll give you a vision. How many of you, don't lift your hands at all, have felt that things in your life have disqualified you? Or have asked, why would God use me? Or have suspected, what do I have that God needs? Well, that one I can answer. you got nothing He needs. But if you'll make yourself usable, as the, the, young, uh, the, the Humphrey boys say, He'll use you up. If you'll get usable, He'll use you up. They just, they're just doing the do with no idea of the will or purpose of God. Again, I want to say this again. Having a vision is seeing what God wants. What does God want? What does God want you to be? Travis, what does God want you to be? He wants me to be a disciple maker. A disciple maker. So that presumes you're a follower who commits his life to raising up other followers of Christ. Is that what God wants you to be? It is having a vision for the heart of of what's on God's heart, of what God wants. Are you in tune with what God has on His heart? What does God have on His heart, Anna? People. Do you love people? One of my staff, I call him the Shanester, Shane Vitsky. There's only one Shane in the world. He is special, isn't he, Brian? He's always bringing home stray puppies, people in need. I love that about him, because I don't see through those eyes. I just see things and step over and keep going. And I love Shane's eyes, what he sees. Because he sees people of great value, no matter how downtrodden or how lonely or how broken down they are. He's always talking to street people. Always talking to down and out hurting. As well as students, he meets with Brian. And uh, that's not one of the broken ones. He's one of the good ones. Just thought I'd clarify that. Uh, but... Do you see people like he sees? How does God see you? How does God feel about you? Good. Does he love you? What if you misbehave? That's right. If I catch a vision for what God wants me to be, a disciple who makes disciples, I must catch what he has on his heart, and that's people. Both his children and both those he desires to be his children. Having a vision is doing what God has led you to do. How many of you can help somebody have a quiet time? Hold your hand up. You can help somebody have a quiet time. Can you help someone can you help someone learn how to pray? Could you help someone to go to church? Could you help someone how to budget, maybe? Some of y'all need help in budgeting. Uh, could you help someone fight the battle of temptations war? Could you hold someone accountable? See, think about the things you can help. Could you come alongside someone because you love them? And give them not just turn or burn, but give them Jesus. And now they got Jesus, let me help you walk. In fact, I'll just walk with you. I'm just a step ahead of you. 
But I'll show you where that safe step is, the next one. And let me, let, me, let me just share with you what God taught me today. How it's helped me and why it's helped me. Can you do that for somebody? I meet people like me all the time. I meet people who are not like me all the time. And I can help them. Just like people help me. Max Barnett did not disciple me. I lived in Colorado. He lived in Norman, Oklahoma. I didn't go to OU. I was out of college when we met. I was 25 years old when we met. 24, I guess I was. Before the days of cell phones, before the days of laptops, before the days of iPods and iPhones, blah, 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 blah. He would write me. He would call me. He'd send me notes that he was praying for me. How do you think that made me feel? I thought, well, and then I discovered later he does that to about a thousand people. <laughs> but I didn't care. I thought I was the only person on the planet he did that to. I felt special. I felt enriched. Can you do the same for somebody? Having a vision is dependent on God to work through you. Can you get to the place where God, it's not me, it's you? I am dependent on you and your resources. If you don't come through God, I sink. Stand on the promises of God. What does God want you to see? That He loves you and desires you to be conformed to the likeness of His Son? Do you see that's what He wants of your life? That's what He wants. But the same is true of the world. Because that's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. What thoughts or comments do you have? Yes, ma'am. A lot about vision, but you know, how it can be on any context. But as far as like the how, like in your particular context, like do you have any like tips for like discovering that, or as far as in whatever context you are finding out how to do that best? Okay, uh, she's asking what context do you find it out in whatever stage of life you're in, correct? Yeah. And you're talking about the concept. Of how do you find this vision? Right. You got you got the vision. You got the vision. But like how to carry that out in whatever context. Okay, great. How do you carry it out? You got a vision. You know what you want to do. How do you carry it out? Where does it begin? You tell me. Where does it begin? What must you do? Begins with Christ. Christ. You know that. So what are you going to do? Who's going to bring clarity to your job reality to make disciples there? He is. So what are you going to do? Get his word and prayer. Lord God. You want me to work with this guy or this guy or this person or this person? Lord God, I'm praying right now that you work in Bob's life and Matt's life. I don't know what they're needing. I don't know how I can help them. I don't know how to build a relationship. But God, I pray you give me opportunities, bridges and doors to walk through and cross over. God, I pray that you will use me. Random acts of kindness. Becoming intentional about going to people and saying you're cubicle. I pray every morning. Can I pray for you? Is there anything I could be praying for you about? You know what I've had happen? I go When I go into restaurants, I'll almost always ask the waitress before we pray. I'll say this. We're Christians here. and We pray for our meal. Is there anything you'd like us to pray for you about? I've only had on a couple of occasions where they said, no, you can't pray for me. Most of them will say, yeah, my kid's sick. Or I'm really struggling financially. We were at Olive Garden in Denver, Colorado a few years back. I'll never forget this because it was so traumatic. I asked this lady, can I pray for you? She goes, ah. And she started crying. I said, ma'am, I didn't mean to make you cry. She goes, I'm a Christian. My brother went. No matter where I go, he finds me. And 
He found me in the Olive Garden. I know he's trying to reach me. And you just never know. And so it can be as innocent as just asking people you work with, how can I pray for you? See, as you pray for people, you're listening. See, this isn't just coming and doing a program. Programs don't listen to people. Programs have an agenda and a checklist. We're talking about people becoming like Christ, sojourning with a person, coming alongside a person. So in your job reality, to know, love, and glorify Christ, to use Him to raise the qualified disciples, blah, 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 blah. You take that and you begin to say, what does she need? How can I help her? How can I encourage her? How can I tell this person, show this person, I care for them more than they'll ever understand, but it's not me, it's Christ in me. How can I let this person know I will be their friend if they never come to Christ, I'll be their friend and show them Christ. So they know what He looked like and what He sounded like. Prayer in the Word, prayer in the Word. And what will He do if you spend that amount of time praying the Word, looking around you, and being specific in your prayer, what will He give you? Vision for how. Vision for how. It's not a microwave vision. It's His vision. It'll come and it'll have significant impact because you pray, you seek. And the same time you're praying. And so they said, pray for my child who was sick. Next week, go, you know, I was praying for your son, Charlie. How's Charlie today? Doing great. Is there anything else? And all of a sudden, what will happen is you've opened a door to their life, to your life. Because the world doesn't do that. The world doesn't engage like this, but we do. And they don't have to know your agenda is to come alongside them and help them be a Christ follower. Your agenda is to have them be like Christ. What an agenda. But you don't have to tell them that. Yes, I'm here in this office to help you become like Christ. I will invest in you deeply. You will learn from me how to walk with God. This is God's program for your life. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. That's not what we're doing. We want to know we love them because Christ loves them. And you you don't even have to say that up front. You can share the love of Christ, and then down the road you can say, you know why I do what I do for you? Because Jesus did it for me. And I want you to know the Jesus that loves me, because He loves you more than anyone you'll ever know. That's why we do what we do. Does that answer your question? Any other questions before we dismiss? Has this been helpful? i got to teach you this again. I want to make sure I'm on target. All right. You have an hour and 15 minutes to talk about developing a life vision. But I will say this, it takes one decision to begin the journey. I made a decision that that would be my journey. Now, peruse on this. This is kind of a flow chart. I, I stole it from Avery Willis and Master Life and just kind of recreated it to be like what I like. But the one thing I would tell you to do is says the disciple makers, his passion, put vision underneath there. Because they have a vision for making disciples. But I differentiate between a visionary and a disciple and a vision. But go ahead and put vision there if you would. Chew on this, ponder this, see if this isn't consistent with what we talked about, this little flow chart of life. On the disciple maker, underneath the word passion, just write vision. But chew on this. And if during this week you have any questions, any thoughts that we can do better, please let me know. Thanks for your time. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that these men and women, women will be men and women of vision. And that that vision will be defined by your word to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. To first be a disciple who makes disciples. And Father, I pray that the great command will be our compass to love you, to love our neighbor, and to love our brother and sister. To help them become like you. To encourage, to build up, to rebuke, to exhort, to 
challenge, to model, to show, to embrace, to care, to nurture, to strengthen. May we be such people. And I pray this in Christ's holy name that we will be that. Build on our lives those blocks that would be most glorifying to your name. For the foundation that we have in our life, I pray is Christ. So let us take care of how we build on that. For he's the only foundation we have. For your glory we live. I pray that each one of these men and women have a sense of singular clarity as to what they will give their lives to. And I pray this for them in Jesus' name. Amen.